I'm Inez Stepman, in for Rachel Bobard. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, unfortunately, of course, today we're going to kick it off talking about the, the tragic and evil events in, in Texas, the school shooting. Um, we're going to move on to talking about uh, an inter-GOP battle over the issue of biological sex uh, and protecting girls and women in sports. And then we're going to move to uh, something that I think is on everybody's at least pocketbook, if not their minds, uh, Biden's energy policies and gas prices uh, coming up to a record high. And then we'll be moving finally to foreign policy, talking about uh, sort of the language around standing with Taiwan while functionally funding the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so, want uh, Josh? Do you want to kick it off with our, our first our first unfortunate topic? Yeah. So it's unfortunate that we have to do this. It's tragic, obviously, that we have to do this. But I think it would be uh, deeply imprudent and unwise of us to escape the elephant in the room as terrible as that elephant is, which of course is the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, coming pretty close on the heels of the recent mass shooting in Buffalo, New York. What happened in Uvalde, of course, comes roughly 10 years after the similar elementary school mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. Look, uh, this is, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, the left, as, as always, pivots to gun control in a situation like this. I guess from my perspective, my first immediate takeaway is, and I say this, by the way, as someone who comes from a long line of teachers. My mom is actually an elementary school teacher. She's a third grade teacher. She's retiring next month after 20 plus years of just admirable and heroic service. I'm so very proud of her. Um, my grandmother was a special education teacher. My great grandmother was actually a special education teacher. So this kind of hits home, to be honest with you, um, quite a bit. Um, I guess from my perspective, my, the first thing that comes to immediate mind is 10 years after Sandy Hook, after Newtown, how the hell is there not armed security at every single school in America? I, I, I mean, it is just mind boggling to me that, you know, it seems like everywhere you look, you know, when the left is not trying to defund the police, make the police go away. I mean, there are officers who tend to be at all these kind of random locations, you know, doing all sorts of things. I mean, if we are not prioritizing the security of our children, what for the love of God, are we doing? So I, I look. I, I guess the answer is that the left's hatred of guns extends to such an extent that they, I think, are incapable of kind of rationalizing to themselves the idea that there is such thing as a good man with a gun. I mean, you know, it's become kind of this NRA talking point, but it's really not just a talking point. It happens to be true that evil exists in this world, and the way to combat evil is with good. And as the case may be in this case, the best way to combat that evil with good is with armed and trained good. And that can only come, obviously, by having school security. One other thing that I was really happy to see my friend Ann Coulter kind of get out in front of, this was her quick kind of column, is we can start talking about involuntary commitment again. The demographic is shockingly similar for all of these various mass shootings, not always. So the, the Las Vegas shooting, of course, where the shooter was um, at the Mandalay Bay Hotel in late 2017 or, or 2018, whenever that was, um, that was an older man. But usually, almost always, it seems it is a younger, troubled, late teen, early 20s kind of loner, profoundly loser young man. And these people have to be kind of mentally ill. There was clearly something, to state the obvious point, there was something profoundly wrong with the kind of human being who does this. 
And to the extent that our overly liberalized asylum and, and, and mental laws do not allow for someone of this nature to be kind of taken away to a mental asylum, certainly in kind of the late 1960s, when a lot of kind of war and court criminal procedure was being liberalized in America in general, our, our institution and our civil commitment laws were drastically liberalized. I, I think if there is one kind of thing that conservatives should really start talking about besides the armed security point, from my perspective, it is that obviously there's going to be a newfound push for all, you know, all sorts of kind of incremental quote unquote gun control measures. I think conservatives properly will probably just reject most of these proposals. The, the, the reality is, no, even if you wanted to quote unquote control guns, and no one here on this podcast needs to hear this, obviously, there are more firearms than people in the United States of America. So even if you wanted to do that, that, that ship has simply sailed. We decided a very long time ago that we were going to have a well-armed citizenry. That obviously is why the Second Amendment is right there in the Bill of Rights, going back to 1791. That's not to say that we shouldn't theoretically be open to the idea of an, a, a compelling empirical thing. So let me, for example, if something like a red flag law, actually, if it were compellingly demonstrated based on the hard empirical data that this really, really worked, I think we should be open to it at least. But that simply does not exist. Um, there is no such thing as kind of any proposal that I'm aware of that is shown to have any kind of um, a, a empirical, compelling reasonable way to kind of actually get through the problem because we, we are we are ultimately kind of an increasingly kind of atheistic kind of unchristian society and that is just profoundly sad but um i i guess on that note i'll just kind of get y'all's thoughts on on that little soapbox yeah um to jump in here i completely agree with you about the conversation about commitment um, it's involuntary commitment, right? It's obviously a large part of the homelessness conversation. Uh, actually, then Governor Reagan is the one who liberalized those laws in California. Um, I, I think it's a small piece of the, the, the problem, of course, um, but it's at least as valid a conversation to have as the, the seems seemingly cons just uh, endless conversation that goes around and around about uh, guns and gun control. Uh, but I, I was thinking about some other things that we are, are never part of this national conversation. Uh, one is, is media infamy, uh, which there actually is some pretty good so social science and uh, demonstrating that there is a connection that these things happen in clusters because of the infamy granted to uh, the first or second one of these guys who commits the, this kind of heinous act. Uh, you know, Daily Wire was way, way ahead of everybody else in refusing to publish the names of these guys. Uh, we just dissected someone's national manifesto, um, which parts of it were left wing, which parts of it were right wing. I mean, that in itself um, does create an enormous incentive to go out and, and, and do these kinds of heinous evil acts. Another thing we don't talk about, fatherlessness and broken families. 80 plus percent of these guys are coming uh, from homes where their biological father is not involved. Uh, and then finally, I think, um, Josh, you touched on it a little bit, but the, there is a, a post um, in the United States, a post-Christian, but in the West more broadly, post-religious crisis of meaning. Um, it does seem to have more violent results in the United States than it does, say, in Europe. Maybe that's because we're more, still a more sort of youthful and vitalistic society, slow decline, not not seemingly in the cards for us, uh, more more explosive and uh, seems seems to be um, confronting us at this point. But but these are all things that don't fall into what seem to be the two buckets, or I guess three uh, three buckets of these these horrible incidents that we're allowed to discuss. One is if they're connected with in some way with racism, right? Obviously, then that's the narrative, white nationalism. 
Um, if that doesn't work, then it's the gun control narrative, even though in most of these cases, there's no evidence whatsoever that any of these gun laws would have stopped them. In this case, for example, the shooter already broke two gun laws um, in, in, in the process of getting into the building, one about concealed carry um, and, and one about carrying firearms on school campuses. So those are two gun laws that were ignored by this shooter and many others. Um, and then the third bucket, of course, is just the, the memory hole, right? Um, these, these mass killings, if they don't fit into either one of those narratives, then we just forget they exist, which is what happened with the subway killings in New York. So um, all of those national conversations, I, I mean, I, I guess I do sympathize with the exhaustion that people have with them at this point. They just seem so beside the point. We're not going to move. It doesn't seem likely that we're going to move on, you know, sort of gun, the issue of guns or anything else or any of these major national conversation items. And they are taking the place of perhaps more meaningful conversations that we we could have around um, you know around insanity and involuntary commitment around media and then you know around fatherlessness these are conversations that we might actually be able to to move forward in some way but we're not having them because you know there are the buckets and we're going to stay the buckets of conversation that we have after every single one of these tragedies Media is the easiest conversation to have, in fact, because it's it's a, a clear uh, the, the the connection between media coverage and repetitive repeated mass shootings um, has been borne out by social science. Zed Jelani reposted an excellent um, write up that he had done for Berkeley uh, a few years ago in the wake of what happened yesterday. It's pretty obvious that the way we cover these things, and and as talking about the manifesto is such a good example. These people love the mystique um, of being. Being picked apart and so the media has a, a huge responsibility and there's zero interest i understand it's tough but there's zero interest in covering this better um and that is really um th that is really i think an easy route right there i'm i think i and i would hope that this does open up conversations about involuntary commitment laws um because and, and it should also should also reopen a conversation about social media um frankly because we now see uh the buffalo shooter was on discord this person had uh, from yesterday had posted um menacing and threatening type uh social media it's just there has to be a better way over and over again um we see the same things happening and while a gun is a commonality in all of them there are many, 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 many other commonalities in all of them. Um, and so I know we're running low on time and I'll, I'll kick it over to Ben. Yeah, I guess I'd say briefly, and it goes without saying, but the, the shameful demagoguery of the president and his allies here is sickening once again before uh, the bodies have turned cold, that there is a rush to essentially, first of all, try and violate the natural right to self-defense of millions of law-abiding American citizens on the basis of the acts of clearly insane and deranged people fueled by a toxic kind of social media and media environment more, more broadly, which sort of makes this the story and then in their own sick, twisted minds, it allows them to sort of glorify their acts and to become bigger than I guess they are uh, as the very small people that they all clearly are in their own lives. Uh, so, you know, th there's the shameful demagoguery aspect of it, which is sickening and itself speaks to a sickness within our society, that there's the rush to try and destroy our political adversaries and run roughshod over our Second Amendment as a consequence of the acts of the most insane and deranged people. Uh, and, and then there's the other aspect of this, I think, which is that as everyone has spoken to, 
you know, what about the culpability of the individual, not the culpability of society here? And then what are we going to do to prevent this going forward? And the prevention should not be to disarm again the law abiding. It should be to protect individuals in these schools with those who honor the Second Amendment. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to say about this topic. We could do the whole show, um, obviously, and, and many more after that on on what the deeper problems here are and why we do seem to have such a, a higher rate of, of particular kinds of violence. And that's not limited to gun violence, by the way, by by any stretch of the imagination. We have higher knife crime than the UK. UK. <laughs> and, and they don't have the guns, they're replacing them with knives, so their knife crime is going up, but ours is still outpacing them. So um, there's obviously a huge, huge conversation to be had, but um, let's, let's uh, turn to the second topic, which is uh, about a war within the Republican party um, over the biological definition of sex. Well, just to, to kick it off here, I mean, um, it's kind of a sad thing that we're having this inter GOP war over this uh, to the extent that this is something that literally everyone, 99.999% of people agreed upon in virtually every society in the history of man, uh, that there are biological differences between men and women. Uh, but nevertheless, of course, there is no issue upon which establishment Republicans cannot um, sort of uh, bow out of a fight over. So, um, most recent episode of this is that uh, Governor Eric Holcomb of Virginia, or sorry, of Indiana, uh, actually vetoed a women's sports bill. This is a really basic uh, thing that says that if you're going to play in a public school, if you're going to play sports, you have to be the bio biological sex uh, that that sports team is made uh, made for, not the not your identification. We're not going to assign you to sports based on your identification. Well, that veto was just overridden by the Republican legislature. Um, but this is not the first Republican veto of this kind of bill. Um, last year, we had uh, Louisiana's governor, Governor Bell Edwards, vetoing a similar kind of sports bill. Um, governor Asa Hutchinson uh, vetoed a medical transition for minors, a, a law banning medical transition for minors. Um, he got humiliated on Tucker Carlson over it. This year, he did sign a women's sports bill. Um, but we had uh, Utah Governor Cox, he, he's vetoed one of these women's sports bills. Famously, Christy Noem last year um, vetoed one of these bills at the insistence of the NCAA. Uh, and then was was able to like sort of be convinced over by the groundswell of opinion against it, uh, both in her state and nationally. And she signed one of those bills last year. But I, I think it's important to to note that even on such a fundamentally obvious issue as uh, the biological differences between the sexes, uh, there is pushback from the establishment GOP. It's going to require a lot of effort and not just from the right um, and not to not to repeat myself, although I hear that the, the best thing is to repeat yourself early and often, but um, the, the culture war really is the big 10 here. Uh, this, this is an issue where we have 80 plus percent of Americans on our side, and that includes a lot of not only moderates, but Democrats. Uh, we should be putting the left on the defensive here with policies like my institution, IWF um, and IWV. We have something called the Women's Bill of Rights, which defines biological sex uh, in the law. We should be actively seeking to define it because as we talked about last week, um, you know, there are attempts through the administrative state to redefine st sex in a way that'll never go through the hands of the voters. So it's up to us now to make sure that uh, we actually are passing on the state and the federal level good law that actually defines biological sex and prevents this kind of um, these those kinds of redefinitions from the administrative state. And I'll kick it out to the rest of you. 
It's a good example of what um, Terry Schilling talks about. And in, in as we've talked about this many times, there's maybe a misinterpretation of the Andrew Breitbart maxim that politics is downstream of culture. Um, and Terry always pushes back and, and says, you know, that's that's absolutely true. But you can't take for granted that politics, the culture is also downstream of politics. And so the administrative state, if we think all the way back to 2016, um, the dear colleague letter from then Education Secre Secretary John King, um, um, that he released under President Obama, which essentially read gender identity into Title IX for publicly funded schools. Camille Paglia at the time uh, wondered if that was what it, it predicted, actually, that that might be what loses the election for Hillary Clinton. Um, and what we saw after that, I, I don't know how true that turned out to be, but what we saw, it's kind of hard to disentangle all the variables, but variables. But we saw after that was this massive push um, in the culture to sort of use that it gave credibility that policy gave credibility to this idea and then it it, it was amazing how it soaked the administrative state in this definition and in this um this effort to redefine the phrase um and so that's i, I think a really important um, I, I think it's really important to recognize the ripple effects of these administrative decisions because once it comes, it's a it's a domino effect that goes throughout this the massive administrative administrative state, and so fighting it on both levels, both on the cultural level and on the policy political level, um, is is absolutely necessary um, in in this case. Yeah, I mean, so look, I think about oftentimes, probably more than I should, kind of the founding of the Republican Party back in the middle of the 19th century, back in the 1850s, Abraham Lincoln was famously the first Republican president. I'm like a real Lincoln file. I'm like born his birthday. So I think about kind of those founding days a lot. The early Republican Party back in the, in the 1850s was founded as this quite erudite essay from Robbie George and a co-author who I can't remember back in National Review like 15, 20 years ago noted the, the original GOP was founded to oppose what it called at the time the quote-unquote twin relics of barbarism, which it, refer, it was referring to at that time as slavery and polygamy. Uh, the latter, of course, you know, took on at the time kind of like an anti-Mormon hue. The former, of course, I think is self-explanatory. But I, I, you know, if there is such thing as kind of a modern kind of analog as, uh, as barbarism, I think it is gender mutilation and castration and really a lot of kind of the kind of egregious manifestations of modern gender ideology. And I think about the fact that if the Republican Party is and the conservatives in general are going to stand for literally anything, they're going to stand for literally anything. It surely has to be for the male-female biological dichotomy that is the literal core, the literal building block of the family, which by extension, of course, is the literal building block of civilization. So, you know, holding aside, obviously, something that we point out on this, on this podcast all the time, which is that as a pure kind of political self-interested matter, actually fighting the culture war with the aim of victory is the aim of victory, excuse me, is not necessarily something that redounds against Republicans' interests. To the contrary, if done prudently and effectively, it oftentimes can redound to their interests. You know, CEG, Glenn Youngkin, obviously in Virginia. CEG, of course, the polling that clearly supports everything that Florida is doing with respect to the, you know, quote unquote, don't say gay bill with respect to Disney and so forth. So it just seems to me that this is such an 
obvious issue that the Republican Party must get right. And to the extent that there are kind of fifth column elements in our own ranks who would try to salvage our very clear assertion of the biological building box of humanity, those fifth column elements have to ultimately be kind of, uh, you know, undermined and ideally excised, I think. Yeah, I mean, something like this, it's so blatantly obvious. If it's right on the merits and right on the politics, and as a Republican, you are not there, and you are opposing, in effect, your constituents by going against your legislator, and clearly a significant percentage of them, given that the legislature ultimately overrode, what are you doing in the Republican Party? And it's noteworthy that in the governor's sort of rejection of the bill, he kind of cited two points, at least two points. And, and one of them was, first of all, that, you know, the provisions of it uh, could lead to some inconsistencies, essential drafting issues with it. And then another was that, look, other states have brought up similar legislation and they've run into uh, issues with the law, namely with, you know, judges of all ranks, probably uh, potentially enjoining the legislation or, or otherwise halting it. Okay, but as a governor, shouldn't you be fighting to, if you don't like the language, modify the language? And it, and shouldn't you be zealously defending it in a court of law to the extent it ends up there? If not, why not? I mean, very basic questions here. Thankfully, the legislature overrode it in this case, but it's simply remarkable to see that a Republican governor wouldn't have the courage of his convictions on something like this, particularly, again, when the constituents are all there. And lastly, briefly, just on the you know, politics versus culture I think there's certainly a symbiotic relationship there, and we can debate it. Politics impacts culture, culture impacts politics, and political changes can sometimes have cultural impacts that persist over the decades, and that might not be immediately seen. But I think it's worth noting also that the, the Democrat sort of policy is to use any and every potential lever to advance their ideology, whether it is the administrative state effectively unelected and unelected branch of government who is executing its will, whether it is through woke capital and using both finances and progressive advocacy groups to agitate on behalf of their positions, whether it is their cultural influence, academic influence, and then by the law. And Republicans have to think in a holistic manner as well. And, and I think this, this represents uh, just one manifestation of where the fight ought to be on behalf of the actual science. Um, I just have to before we wrap up this segment, jump in on behalf of, of the late, great Andrew Breitbart, as this is what Josh is laughing about over there in the corner, because we were uh, we were recently in, in a symposium together, and I made the same point, um, and I will make it to Terry, uh, Terry Schilling, when I see him next time, and that is that we're misusing Breitbart's maxim. I know that there are people who would, who would use that maxim about politics being downstream from culture uh, to uh, sort of um, head off the political solutions to cultural problems. That is not what Andrew Breitbart meant. He was trying to call attention in 2012 um, to the fact that the GOP only, the things that seem actually really obvious to us now and that we've all been talking about, he was really on the edge, the leading edge of. He was saying you can't just cut taxes and ignore the fact that the culture is falling off a cliff. So uh, just to defend defend the late great Andrew Breitbart on, on, on that point. But nevertheless, it's a salient point. That phrase has become a stand-in for a particular type of conservatism that absolutely exists that imagines that um, that cultural issues can only have cultural solutions and not capital P political ones. Um, but let's transition to the next subject here, Emily. Um, let's uh, let's talk about something that's hitting everybody in, in, in the pocketbook. Let's talk about the price of gas, uh, inflation, and American energy policy. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are policies uh, coming from the Democratic Party right now, the purported party of the the working class that um, are making the pain at the pump all that much worse. Uh, gas prices continue to set records, and it is appropriate to make have this conversation um, on this week, which finds a lot of Americans driving to celebrate Memorial Day, um, one of our most important holidays in this country. That's, of course, not merely about barbecues and fun. Um, but about remembering the lives lost and you know the service of defending and protecting that freedom that we enjoy um, as we drive around to visit family and friends on Memorial Day. So the Biden administration's energy policies, I mean, starting with their idiocy with the Nord Stream 2 sanctions, um, but then going on down to refusal to unleash the full might of um, American energy and insisting that we're in, quote, a transition process towards renewables is remarkable. Maybe you can give Biden applause for actually saying uh, the quiet part out loud, which is that this is a transition process. It's something that has snuck into the Democratic Party's rhetoric um, many times over the course of the last couple of decades, but is uh, directly responsible for the pain people are feeling at the pump. Of course, there are effects from uh, unavoidable uh, circumstances overseas. There's no question about it. But in the immediate future, these this pain could certainly be greatly alleviated um, were the Democratic Party to change its stance on unleashing the full power of American energy as opposed to forcing Americans through a painful period of transition intentionally to incentivize a rush to renewable energy. So it was interesting to see Biden talk about the, quote, transition um, this week. It's interesting to consider what they will be doing as this continues in an election year. They tried the, they tried the Putin price hike line out for a while, and I'm not sure that it landed, um, especially in the face of their own inability to unleash the full force of American energy policies. So it's, it's incredible. And I wonder, actually, if the electoral pains that that Democrats face um, as a result of the pain that everyone's feeling at the pump um, will finally be what induces uh, a, a shift and some sanity. I don't know, because as much as they like to talk about special interests in the oil and gas industry, um, there's plenty of special interests in the green industry as well that has Democrats fully in their pocket. So I'll open it up to the group and just ask this question. Um, you know, what on earth is the Biden administration doing? And is there any possibility that we see a shift in, in energy policies because of the severity in an election year um, with record with new records being set seemingly every week? So I, I, I want to make a very quick addendum to the final segment. So just for the record, at the, at the symposium that Inez were, and I were at, where she made this point with Andrew Breitbart, I, I, I certainly yielded. I, I, so that was score Inez one, Josh zero uh, on, on the pointed issue there. Um, so I want to give credit where credit is due. But to, but to the current conversation here, um, you know, look, I mean, I, I refilled my car at the, at, the, at the pump last week. I'll probably do so again very shortly because my car has for whatever reason like a smaller tank than than it should and like these prices are just are, are just disgusting i mean it is totally completely astronomical here but i guess the point that i want to make similar to the last segment is that this is yet another issue where the proper policy and the proper politics completely converge i mean the environmentalist nutjob lobby the green zealots you know the people that would you know, are effectively kind of Malthusian radicals who think that you're killing the planet by giving birth to new life you know by giving more kind of you know, carbon dioxide emitting human beings, 
those people are a tiny fraction of the electorate. But as with so many elements of the Democratic Party's ridiculous modern kind of intersectional identity politics, interest group driven, bizarre coalition of the oppressed and kind of uh, the upper west side white liberals and whatnot, due to the nature of the, the disproportional kind of heft that they pull within that coalition, they kind of show their might in the blue check Twitter audience, Twitter whatnot, but they are a tiny fraction of the electorate. The most of the electorate here just wants gas prices to get under control. I mean, it is not a particularly radical solution. I mean, I, you know, I, I saw a report, it was either from JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs or one of the bulge bracket banks just a couple of days ago that said that prices from here are expected to only go further high. I mean, like I, I saw literally one estimate, you know, 25 to 30% higher than the current baseline. We could potentially be looking at like $6 a gallon gas if this thing is not kind of rectified within the next few months. So uh, this is just such an obvious thing for me, again, similar to kind of the, you know, the male-female biological dichotomy. This, this is just, just be such an obvious thing for Republicans that they kind of gear up for midterms this fall. Get America energy independent. It was one of the most under-discussed, miraculous elements of the Trump presidency was that America was no longer a net importer of fossil fuels by the end of the four-year Trump presidency. It was an incredible, incredible achievement, and Republicans should be adopting this as a major talking point. Um, yeah, I, Josh, I really think you hit your uh, you put your finger on something here, which is the difference between conservation and modern environmentalism, which is is so stark. I mean, um, when I think about, for example, Teddy Roosevelt's conservation efforts, right? They're they're actually focused on conserving the natural world for the purpose of humanity, right? Um, you know, Teddy and others were concerned about what man would become when divorced wholly from nature. Um, that is such a different concern than modern environmentalism, which seems to look on, on humanity itself as a cancer uh, and, and then think that the world would be better off without man. Um, and I do think that that's like an important both psychological and, and um, ideological distinction. But but yeah, I mean, it, there, this conversation seems to be so utterly unserious, like even taking the the um, premises right uh, for granted right let's say that climate change is a concern i'm not particularly concerned about it but let's grant for the sake of 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 argument that that's a concern if one were to go about that concern in a actual serious way of course and this is not i'm not the first person to make it the, the nuclear power would be at the top of, of the list in terms of actual alternatives to fossil fuel that produce enough energy to to make not just a uh, not just produce enough energy to power the grid, but to make the grid reliable, which is another huge issue that America is probably going to face going into the summer where demands on energy are high, not just skyrocketing prices, but the grid itself being unreliable and shutting down. It seems like we're all going to live in California now uh, where there are rolling brownouts and blackouts. This is, you know, third world stuff. Um, and, and you know, again, we're missing the, the, the sort of forest for the trees if we're actually going to go about uh, moving towards a cleaner world in terms of the energy we burn. Of course, uh, pre-industrial societies had dirtier methods of, of creating energy um, than, than coal. Natural gas is cleaner than coal. Nuclear power is cleaner than both of those. All of them have downsides. Um, but but it's, it's sort of this, um, I do think it has to do with uh, folks being so detached from the actual um, 
you know, actual consequences of really, really high energy costs, they go beyond the pump. The pump is where people feel it the most in America, um, especially because we are such a car-driven culture, but uh, the, the high cost of energy really does redound on, on the working class the worst, um, and, and it really does affect the prices of almost everything, right? The fact that it's more expensive to ship things, the fact that it's more expensive, um, you know, to, to create all kinds of, of plastics and things that we need to make in order to, to produce the goods. I mean, this, this is the cost of energy is something that goes into nearly every aspect of the economy. And the fact that we are, are so like sort of head in the sky about it and, and the left refuses to um, even sit down at the table and even within uh, the concerns about, about um, you know, sort of environmental concerns that have a serious and hard-headed conversation, but how we might actually fund the, the middle-class lifestyle uh, that Americans are, are used to, uh, you know, without producing uh, too much pollution in various forms. We have no serious conversation about that right now uh, because the left does have this humanity is a cancer and it'd be better if we, we don't even exist um, attitude, which is, you know, kind of like uh, Israel negotiating with certain aspects of, of um, you know, uh, with, with their neighbors. It's like, you can't really negotiate when the, the position of the other team is you shouldn't exist. I'm glad, Inez, that you hit the point about the fact that higher energy prices are baked into literally everything that makes modern life run. So it's not strictly a, a at-the-pump hardship. It's a hardship in virtually every aspect of our economy. And I also want to make the point that underscore Josh's point about the fact that we were energy independent. And if you're not energy independent, you were energy dependent. And who have we been dependent on for decades? Well, of course, the Middle East. Uh, now you see with the Biden administration going hat in hand to a Venezuela or an Iran, which it intends to fill the coffers of after it executes an Iran nuclear deal 2.0. Uh, and of course, it empowers Middle Eastern regimes who play every side against the middle and basically align with a strong horse at the end of the day. But of course, oftentimes use their funds to fund proxies who uh, seek the death of America. So, you know, there's the energy independence aspect of this, which is about our really our independence as a country. And if we're not independent when it comes to that most vital input, input of energy, then we have major, major problems. Of course, there's the irony here that those on the left who are, suddenly became the greatest Russia hawks in the world post-Cold War are also the ones aligned with the environmentalists who served Putin's agenda by helping drive up the price of oil and forcing us to go elsewhere to get oil. Then there's, of course, the you know let them eat Tesla's kind of, or I guess not Tesla's now because Elon Musk is no longer kosher for them, but whatever the electronic vehicle or alternative vehicle will be, aspect of it, which just shows you uh, the sort of pie-in-the-sky view of our betters. So in every single aspect of this, it's disastrous. And the last point I'll make is I, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when Hillary Clinton went to Virginia and talked about the fact that we're going to kill coal. And that was viewed as one of the great political gaps of that era. This agenda is far more brazen, radical, destructive than that. And it ought to be called out as such. This is about punishing the American people in service of a political agenda that, of course, will line the pockets of the left and its allies, and will serve arguably an even broader nefarious agenda to punish Americans towards whatever their ultimate ends are. I can't even begin to get into their mindset to understand why you would hurt the citizenry to such an extent as they do. Uh, but on that note, since I was talking about uh, independence versus dependence, I'll transition to my topic, which uh, you know was sort of spurred by what I believe CNN literally cast as the Biden strategy of strategic confusion with respect to 
Taiwan. Of course, every single time Joe Biden has gone off script, his handlers have tried to walk back his statements, particularly on massive issues like those of war and peace, and in this case, with regard to China. So Joe Biden basically said that America was committed to defending Taiwan. And he said this while speaking with his Japanese counterpart during this trip to the Indo-Pacific to try to lock in some sort of nascent a trade pact, trade alliance with nations in the region. Uh, of course, ultimately, you know, one would have to think, even though they don't explicitly say this because they're soft, uh, to counter China in the region and you know, diversify our supply chains, harden them, et cetera. Now, it would appear that this was scripted based upon the nature of the way in which Joe Biden went about it. But of course, his handlers walked it back immediately and said, you know, position hasn't changed. We continue our strategic ambiguity. I wish I could believe that this was an attempt at strategic ambiguity and not a question of who actually is in charge today. But we have all of those questions to ask. We also have questions to ask about, okay, to the extent that America is devoted to defending Taiwan, that necessarily means we're willing to get into a war with communist China. What does that entail? What should the American people be willing to bear? What steps would the administration take to deter China in that instance? We haven't talked about any of those questions, really. The president has and his administration has not. But then there's something that's fundamentally unserious about this. And there's one narrow point and one bigger point about this. One is that while Biden was negotiating this sort of new Indo-Pacific nascent alliance, Taiwan was excluded from it, despite the fact that he's talking about defending Taiwan. But number two, and this is a small point, but representative of a much bigger one, and not many, this has not been covered widely by the press. Some will recall that during the Trump administration, the thrift savings plan, which is sort of the 401k retirement plan that members of the federal government can contribute into, was looking to change one of the funds, one of its international funds that members of the government, including servicemen and women, could invest in, which would have led to the financing of myriad Chinese companies, many of which are blacklisted, that fund uh, or that represent and arm China's war machine that provide the surveillance technology used in the Xinjiang gulags and beyond. So essentially, you could have had U.S. service members putting their retirement savings in companies working towards ultimately destroying our military. Uh, the Trump administration fought tooth and nail, along with some members of the Senate and the House, to push for the board that oversees these retirement accounts not to shift into this international fund that would expose our servicemen and women, government members, to basically financing and underwriting a regime aimed at their demise. The Biden administration is now looking at creating an opportunity for thousands of new mutual funds or other funds to be invested in with retirement accounts, which they have admitted, the, the board has admitted, they cannot vet to see whether Chinese companies will be included in these funds, including Chinese companies that are in many cases blacklisted, sanctioned, et cetera. So several members of the US Senate have raised uh, an uproar over this, including among them Senator Rubio, Scott, Hawley, Cotton, Marshall, and Portman. There are also several members of the House as well. Who, they have jointly written letters to the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board about this. But this speaks to, I think, a couple of things. I mean, one that we've talked about before is the fact that, I believe we've talked about before, is underwriting our worst adversary. And this shows you uh, the wages, the costs of integration and accommodation over the years. And the fact that if you're really serious about combating China, how could you possibly give them access to your capital markets like we do, and particularly to fund companies that are working towards our demise? But then this administration, this administration is going to defend Taiwan, yet it isn't taking every single opportunity to ensure that not a single U.S. dollar 
goes into funding the CCP's war machine. How could you possibly square that rhetoric with what the administration's Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, which consists of presidential appointees on it, is considering a plan like this that would allow the underwriting of, again, our demise? So I just put it out there to point out, once again, the fundamental unseriousness of the administration and also the fact that decoupling is more than urgent we needed here. It's, it's, it's actually an imperative as a nation. So it takes me back to this, actually to this same symposium that Inesma recently in, and I remember making some point about Taiwan in particular. You know, Ben, you you chaired this really interesting exchange at NACON Orlando between uh, Mike Anton and Mike Pillsbury about whether the U.S. should actually go to war if strictly necessary, if the People's Liberation Army actually starts marching into Taipei. I personally ultimately agree with Mike Anton on that one that we should not, that does not mean that we should not be taking extremely kind of, you know, urgent kind of uh, policies and, and focus to prevent it at, at virtually all costs short of war that from actually happening, I do. But I, at this symposium, the Nezai were at recently, I was thinking of Taiwan. And, you know, look, at the end of the day, I, I, I tend to be pretty realist when it comes to foreign policy. China is here to stay as a great power. That's not going anywhere, you know, short of, of catastrophic humanity and the nuclear war and the defeat of, of, of this civilization. And that's not going anywhere. So I think we are, that is here to say we need to kind of effectively make peace with that. So from that perspective, on the grand in the grand scheme of things, kind of just looking at kind of the piece of the geopolitical chessboard, it is not truly obvious to me that Taiwan kind of being reabsorbed into Beijing's sphere of influence is the end of the world. However, the reason that it is, empirically speaking, a, you know, what Joe Biden previously would have called a big effing deal, the reason that it is a massive deal, among other reasons, actually, is really because of Taiwan's semiconductor manufacturing company. It's really because of TSMC, which is one of the most prolific semiconductor manufacturers in the entire world. And they are disproportionately responsible for many of the kind of high-end chips, TSMC, has surpassed Intel, America's own Intel in kind of recent decades as being one of the most advanced and sophisticated chip makers. And we use those chips obviously in our products all the time. I mean, we use them in our vehicles and our fighter jets. So from, you know, that is really, really, that is a really compelling argument, I think, for some sort of national security oriented industrial policy measures to reshore some of these critical supply chains, if nothing else. I agree with the thrust of your comments as well, Ben, that a broader kind of economic decoupling is necessary, but having a good place to start, if we, if we, if we can't get bipartisan agreement on the national security implications of kind of semiconductors and chips, if, if nothing else, then I think we're, you know, we're probably heading towards a pretty bad place. Yeah, I'll just agree on that last point. Um, if we cannot get bipartisan agreement on that, because we are so we have been so bought and and sold by these special interests, and that's why I think the Hunter Biden case continues to be so important. Um, not just because of Hunter Biden, but because of uh, how it implicates so many other people, um, and in a totally bipartisan grift. Um, th this is just one instance that we see because he's the president's son. What we don't see is all of the other people that have been working for companies and now have close ties and know people um, in positions of power over there and who will try to soft soften our policy at any given moment with the the financial interests in the back of their mind and some nonsense justification in the front of their mind about how you know we need to be 
we we need not inflame another great power um and you know this has to be more calculated and blah 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 um all of these sort of platitudes that are of course true in isolated cases but um not in in other ones, uh, like for instance, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, um, that you're going to see so many people who who have been compromised um, try to soften our policy at every given turn. We already see it, but if as things escalate, you're going to see people who have been compromised try to soften our policy at every given turn, um, and they will be recycling the platitudes used by the Chinese Communist Party against us about how America needs to clean its own house and is 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 racist and. Um, irredeemably bigoted and, and myriad different ways. This is a preview of, of what is to come as the tensions escalate. And if we cannot have bipartisan agreement on some very basic issues like national security, TikTok is another area where we see this, the national security implications of TikTok, um, the, basically the PSYOP that they're running uh, is just remarkable. So if we don't have that bipartisan agreement, I don't know uh, that we ever will. And with that, I'll kick it over to you, Inez. Yeah, I mean, I, just a couple brief points before we turn to, to closing remarks. Um, you know, first of all, just as a side point, um, Ben, when you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, you see the agencies are trying to walk it back. I mean, there's a point here about who's making policy, and it's easy, easy to slide it into, you know, yes, that the president does seem like he is out to lunch half the time, if not more, um, and that's deeply concerning. But there's actually a broader point here um, that to me is even more concerning, right? The president has now said three times a particular policy on Taiwan, whether it's it's a dumb or not policy, right, just leaving that aside for a moment. And then we have the entire apparatus of the government saying, no, 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 that's not our policy, right? Um, that's because you know it, it raises not only the question of what whether Joe Biden knows what he's saying or not, but since he's now said it three times, it raises the question of who is making or who makes U.S. foreign policy, and is it the elected president or is it the unelected agencies that he allegedly heads? But in reality, we all know he really doesn't. Um, and that's not unique to Joe Biden. That that is a, a larger problem of unelected bureaucracy making critical decisions uh, for the country, sometimes even over the heads of elected officials. Um, and the, the second point is that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think just to speak to what Emily was just saying, you know, capitalism needs side constraints. Um, capitalism is an excellent economic system. Uh, it, it, it produces an enormous amount of wealth. In fact, it has you know, really brought so many, you know, millions, billions of people out of dollar a day poverty in the world. So it has an enormous engine of creating prosperity. That being said, that's what it does. It creates prosperity. It won't create, you know, a, a good or great nation in itself. Um, and, and sometimes there are national or common interests that need to subordinate the profit or the, the prosperity motive. GDP is not the only way uh, to measure whether America is doing well or doing poorly. And, and national security is the most obvious, it seems to me, of those side constraints, right? If, if we are, um, if the pursuit of profit is taking American companies to China to sell the family jewels um, at the expense of American national security, that seems to me to be a, a reason to, to put some kind of restraint on that seeking profit motive, even though I'm generally in favor of the profit motive, because I think it, it comports with human nature, but that doesn't mean that we don't limit it in ways where there is a, a very obvious, for example, and I think national security is kind of the easiest one. It becomes more complicated if you want to talk about what's our domestic common good, right? But um, national security is, is a really good place to start in terms of, of that kind of side constraint. But with that, I will kick it out. Does anybody have final comments before we want to wrap up? 
So uh, look, I guess going back to the topic that has dominated the news this week, and properly so, of course, which is the tragedy at uh, Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. So just a few kind of final thoughts on this truly tragic situation. So look, I, 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 I am a gun owner. I'm a proud gun owner. I have been very outspoken on this issue. I have a concealed carry license. I, I, I even own a, a quote unquote assault weapon. And privately speaking, I you know referred to, to that weapon with friends as my Warsaw ghetto weapon, as my, my truly, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this in the podcast, but like that's like my shit hits the fan weapon. I mean, that is my weapon where like if all else goes to hell, if society breaks loose, that's and the, the magazines and the rounds of ammunition, that's what I want. So for that reason alone, I, I don't necessarily take offense if someone calls me a gun nut or anything like that. But having said that, this simply has to stop. This spate of these horrific teens and these mass shootings has to stop. The problem, obviously, is that there is just it, there is simply not a serious counterparty to these discussions. And I think that we should, again, in theory, be open to some sort. I mean, holding aside the involuntary commitment thing, which I feel quite strongly about, I think, um, you know, Inez is, is, is totally right. That, that is something that we really should be pounding. But even kind of sticking within the confines of incremental gun measures, I don't necessarily have like a zealous ideological animus to something like a quote unquote red flag law. I, ju I just am not empirically sold that it works. And the rebuttable presumption to kind of use legalese and lawyer speak simply has to be against these incremental reforms, obviously, because those who are seeking to kind of infringe on the rights of gun owners have to show by clear and convincing evidence this will clearly cut to the heart of the problem. And to, the, to date, I am not, I am simply not convinced that anything like that happens to be the case. So as the rhetoric is going to reach a fever pitch here over the next few weeks with the Buffalo tragedy and now the Texas tragedy, I, you know, the the onus, the impetus really is, I think, on conservatives to kind of do the do the whole William F. Buckley thing and, and you know, stand athwart history yelling stop again with the kind of the asterisk that I, I think we should be at least open to being persuaded from by clear and convincing empirical evidence. But to my knowledge, that evidence simply does not exist on, on any of these proposed uh, reforms. I'll, I'll I was, oh, go ahead and ask, go ahead. Um, I'll jump in because my final thought is related to that, Josh. Um, I, I, so I, we hear it even on this podcast, we've talked about hardening schools as targets. Um, there may be limited things that we can do, but let's not forget that this, this shooter, you know, shot his way through armed police um, in order to commit the acts that he did. Um, so I, it does seem to me to this, the both the, the this all of the serious conversation to me, um, whether for practical reasons, because it's not just one of the, the main things to realize is it's not whatever the gun lobby it's this is actually Americans are divided on on the gun control question it's one of the few things that a uh, few cultural issues that conservatives actually have managed to hold the line in the culture and it, it is a real divide among the American people not because some lobby spent X number of dollars. Um, so to, to my mind, all of the actual um, serious conversation about how to stop or at least reduce these acts from happening uh, has to happen outside of the gun conversation. And, and unfortunately, and I would add actually the, the whole like white nationalist conversation to that as well. Um, we, we really do have to have a serious conversation about what kind of society we have if, if we are at the level of having to harden schools as targets 
it's not again that I'm wholly opposed to all of those proposals. It's that um, you know I, I think the left has a point here that we don't want to live in a society where that's necessary, um, and it's not some kind of pie in the sky um, you know sort of utopian vision where that's not necessary. All we have to do is go back 30, 40, 50 years in this country um, or look at some of uh, the other countries. And I, I really think that the evidence is very much against guns being the determining a differential factor here. Um, but we do have to look at what it is in American society that that makes it so that these these incidents are more common here than they are around the world and that that violence more generally in our society is more common uh, than, for example, in in um, corresponding European countries. There there are some really tough questions that we're going to have to ask ourselves. Uh, but to my mind, all of that serious conversation is just not going to happen as long as we're spinning ourselves in the same predictable circles about guns and white nationalism, because those are not those are not two factors that that are really not going to add in any serious or substantive way to how we try to prevent this from happening as much as humanly possible. So, uh, and what I was going to say is, we just in the hours after the the shooting, I was uh, party to a conversation about uh, whether or not red flag laws have legitimacy. And I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of the conversation or the policy itself, but someone raised the issue of red flag laws in this era of uh, in this era of incredibly inflated definitions of what constitutes um, a white nationalist or what constitutes a terrorist. Um, and, and so to me, Without going into the granular details of a policy, I do think it, it's a it's a very good and disturbing example of how we are um, kneecapped by our inability to perform basic functions as a society, like consensus definitions, like agreeing and getting to a consensus on basics, like what actually is racism, bigotry, terrorism, violence. If violence is a pronoun misusage, then where do the, what is the future of a red flag law? What is the, and that might sound like a stupid, insane Alex Jones question, but it actually really isn't um, because we saw the terrorist definition yielded against parents at school board meetings just over the course of the pandemic. Um, and we know that the government um, is is intentionally contributing to this inflation, this definition inflation. Um, and that is really, truly disturbing. It's not an argument for or against specific laws about background checks or red flags or whatever, but it is an argument that we are becoming uh, incapable of even producing reasonable policy solutions because we have implicated and we have normalized and conditioned so much of the country to see so much other so many other people in the country as dangers and bigots um, as and threats to their physical safety. Yeah, I think the the problem is of a of a piece of a broader one, which is that, and you know, obviously we have our own view on this, but every every single political cultural debate that we have is a bad faith one. If, if you was if your working assumption is that the other side wants to destroy you and eviscerate your rights and subjugate you, then it's very tough to try to have a logical conversation about any of these issues. And if we even got to the question of you know, what what has led to such antisocial behavior in society? I shudder to think what the left's uh, prescriptions would be to to solve it. What the, what they would suggest about what needs to happen in society to change the conditions that we don't end up with people loners, uh, people who have all sorts of problems, troubled problems in their homes and beyond that that leads them to take acts such as these. So. 
I think we find ourselves in a, in a perilous position uh, in part because it's of a piece with a broader one, uh, which is of a society that is declining in terms of moral virtue, patriotism, the family beyond God, of course. And then you add on to that the fact that we can't even litigate any of these issues in uh, an even-handed and good faith fashion, because to Emily's point, the assumption may well be that if you have an opposing view, that is violence itself. And that requires a, a response by law enforcement to uh, remedy that violence. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I don't want to leave us in a terrible <laughs> lurch there uh, on this last point, but, but I think it's important context for this issue. Uh, I'll say briefly one sort of positive or optimistic point for the week, which will sort of preview uh, likely what I'll cover next week, is that there have been some really fascinating revelations in this John Durham trial of Michael Sussman, the former Hillary Clinton campaign lawyer. Uh, there are two stories here. One are the various revelations that have come out uh, during fascinating testimony put forth by the members of the FBI, uh, Democrat super lawyer Mark Elias and others. And then another level of this, which is uh, the media's silence on these revelations. We, we learned, for example, that the seventh floor of the FBI, the senior rank of the FBI was pushing, for example, for the continued pursuit of the Trump Organization Alpha Bank, Russian Alpha Bank hoax that these servers, there was a secret back channel servers communicating with each other. Uh, while the agents on the ground knew almost immediately it was BS, uh, they got pressure from above to continue pursuing uh, and they weren't allowed to probe as to where the information was coming from. Uh, we also understand that Hillary Clinton herself gave the thumbs up for her uh, mouthpieces to go out and spread the Russia Alpha Bank rumor. Jake Sullivan put out a press release about it. And now the National Security Advisor, Hillary Clinton herself, tweeted it out uh, in October, October 31st. Hillary tweeted it right before the election. Um, and, and then, of course, we've also found out that journalists themselves were confidential human sources, that it is informants for the government in connection uh, with some of the allegations that were raised uh, about Trump Russia. So there are a whole slew of revelations. The fact they're not being covered, of course, speaks for itself in part because the media is implicated in this because they have egg in their face over it. On their, and of course, they want it to go away. Uh, I'm still not at all sanguine about where uh, the Durham special counsel goes, goes in terms of actually bringing to justice the governmental officers who perpetrated this fraud, this massive scandal on the American people and corrupted our political process and undermine their institutions. But all that said, there have been some positive revolution, uh, res revelations thus far from John Durham's work. Uh, and so we can look at that as you know, one minor positive in a, in a sea of awful. And with that, uh, hopefully slightly optimistic uh, final point, I believe that we are out of time. So on behalf of Ben, Emily, Josh, thanks for tuning in. I'm Inez Stepman, and we'll see you at the next NatCon Squad.